This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode features the CBS News of the World of 80 years ago, January 6th, 1942, with updates from the Middle East, Asia, and at home. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donation to help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. News of the World, Tuesday, January 6th. Once again, by international shortwave radio, the Columbia Broadcasting System calls in its correspondents in important world capitals to report on the latest developments. This morning, we shall hear from Batavia in the Far East Fighting Zone, from Tehran, Iran, and the Middle East, and our own nation's capital. In addition, there'll be a summary of news from points not covered in our direct pickup. And here's Harry Marble with a summary of the day's development. The defenders of Luzon continue to resist all Japanese efforts to advance north from Manila. Allies cheered by reappearance of American air power in the western Pacific. United States flying fortresses sink destroyer, score three direct hits on Japanese battleships, and damage other enemy craft in attack off the southern Philippines. Chinese scoff that Japanese claims to have captured Changsha, announced that Chinese troops are pressing attacks on the remnants of the Japanese army which attempted to storm that city. British drop back on both coasts of the Malayan Peninsula. Japanese control Tuancan Airfield on east coast and can now send bombers over Singapore with fighter protection. Japanese raiders fail to appear over Burma after losing six bombers to American fighters on Sunday. Russia announces new gains against Nazis in Leningrad area and in Crimean Peninsula. And London reports that Marshal Timoshenko's southern armies have opened a major assault against Tarkov. Those are the highlights. The day's news from Russia is of successes all along the front, from Leningrad to the Black Sea. In the north, the Russians report that Red Army troops supported by American-made warplanes have retaken about 300 miles of territory in a five-day offensive. In the central sector, there have been more local advances, but the major fighting centers around Mojais, where 100,000 Nazi troops are said to be trapped. Russian big guns are pounding the center of the city, while Russian sea troops and cavalry are said to be attacking Germans in the outskirts. The Berlin radio today admitted that Russian troops supported by heavy tanks have penetrated German lines in the central sector. And in the Crimea, the Russians claim to have cleared the Germans out of the Kerch Peninsula on the east coast. And now William Dunn is standing by in Batavia to bring you the latest news direct from the Far East. So, go ahead, Batavia. This is CBS calling Batavia. This is CBS calling Batavia. Go ahead, Batavia. The first news here tonight, of course, is the announcement by Anita, semi-official Dutch news agency, that Java has been selected as headquarters of a new unified Allied command in the Far East. The announcement has been confirmed here by authoritative sources. 
And the question in the moment is just where on this long and narrow island the headquarters will be established. It is doubtful that the choice will meet any opposition from persons thoroughly acquainted with the situation in the Far East. Most observers with whom I have talked have been of the opinion that Java merited first consideration because of its geographical position in regard to the present theater of war. The Netherlands Indies offer bases from which air operations can be conducted against occupied portions of Malaya, northern Borneo, and southern Mindanao. It also provides at Surabaya the best equipped naval base in this part of the world, excepting only Singapore, with the added advantage that Surabaya, at least right now, is located outside the zone of easy access to Japanese aerial forces. From Borneo, Celebes, and Sumatra, the channel operations are possible, which could provide a constant threat to Japanese communication lines, as well as many established bases in occupied territories. The NEI, as has been remarked often, offer the Allies an unlimited oil and gasoline supply, not to mention rubber, which will be hard to obtain from Malaya and other Far Eastern sources, and quinine, which is absolutely essential to tropical warfare, and which cannot be obtained in large quantities anywhere else in the world. From Java, the Allies will be in ideal position to carry on a successful war against the enemy. There was sad news in the Indies today to counterbalance the good. The commander-in-chief of the NEI Navy announced that a Dutch submarine attached to the British fleet in Eastern Asia has not returned to its base after several days and must be considered lost. This is the second Dutch underwater craft lost since the start of the war. The first, the victim of a mine accident. The official communique of the NEI fighting services this afternoon reports the resumption of Japanese air activity over the outer possessions after a lull of three days. The communique says that enemy aircraft were, were, were reported over a few points in the outer provinces and that a single Japanese aircraft has dropped a number of bombs from a low altitude on an island of the Natuna group. One civilian was seriously wounded and eight homes were destroyed. This is William Dunn in Batavia, returning out of Columbia, New York. And now to the Middle East for the report of Winston Burdett, we take you to Tehran. This is CBS in New York calling Winston Burdett in Tehran. Go ahead, Tehran. This is CBS in New York City calling Winston Burdett in Tehran, Iran. Go ahead, Tehran. Winston Burdett in Tehran. But this is Charles Collingwood in London, and I have some news which has reached here this morning. The Japanese have moved closer to Singapore. This morning's communique from Singapore reports another British withdrawal on the principal Malayan battlefront. The British were forced to fall back because of Japanese landings behind the British lines. No Japanese landings are reported south of Kuala Selangor, which is on the west coast about 250 miles from Singapore. But well-informed observers in London say they can see no reason why the Japanese should not be able to repeat this maneuver further south. The Japanese are apparently using small boats, which they acquired when they captured the island of Penang. Over on the other side of the peninsula, the British have lost Kwantan with its important aerodrome. The Kwantan aerodrome is about 170 miles from Singapore and puts Japanese fighters within easy reach of the fortress. This means the Japanese bombers will be able to have fighter escorts when they raid Singapore. The British are fighting a stubborn battle in Malaya. As they fall back, they are taking a heavy toll of the Japanese. 
but competent observers in London cannot see just where the Japanese are going to be stopped. British bombers made heavy attacks on the German-occupied Atlantic ports of Brest and Cherbourg last night. The British are evidently trying to forestall any German attempt to use these ports to intensify the Battle of the Atlantic. The wave of revolt in unoccupied France is creating a lot of comment in London this morning. Winston Churchill has said that revolt in Europe is one of the keys to Allied victory. Naturally enough, the British welcome any sign of a free spirit in the conquered country. But there's a note of concern in the British reaction to the constant reports of European rebellion. As things stand now, the British can give the conquered peoples little more than moral encouragement. And it's hard to rejoice when you know that for every German killed, 50 Frenchmen or Poles or Serbs are going to be shot. This is Charles Collingwood in London, returning you to Columbia in New York. And now for the report of Eric Severide in our own nation's capital. We take you to Washington. Today the president goes to Capitol Hill, and following the American custom, will report to the Congress on the state of the nation. He is expected to talk less of the immediate past and more of the immediate future, and in so doing, to ask, in full confidence of agreement, that the people accept material sacrifices beyond anything of which they are yet aware. In principle, the people through their representatives have agreed beforehand on these sacrifices, and now they will get a more concrete conception of what this may mean when expressed in dollars. The president will outline the job to be done this year, and then tomorrow, his war budget will be presented to Congress, a budget which may run around $50 billion. The president will address the joint session meeting in the House chamber at 12.30, Eastern Standard Time, and his message will be broadcast to the nation and the world. Congressmen hope from the same message to hear more details of the historic military conferences with the British in the White House, and to get a clearer conception of the basic plans by which the United Nations proposed to win the war. Also, the president is expected to point out the urgent necessity for strict French control, that we may not repeat the sad experience of the last war when inflation increased the war cost by $10 billion. And he will no doubt repeat his pleas to labor and management that they compose their differences over issues which pale into insignificance beside the great issue of victory or defeat. Speculation here this morning leans to the estimate that the president's money request will total around $20 billion for the armed forces of the United States and somewhat more for lend research to the nation's united with us with the balance of the $50 billion to go for the normal operations of government, independent of the war effort. Taxpayers, of course, will pay as they never have before, but the president is known to be determined to try to keep the social gains made on behalf of the underprivileged these last nine years. The House Ways and Means Committee will be the first group to tackle the baffling problem of raising more money by taxes. The chairman of the committee, Robert Dalton of North Carolina, said last night that his head is swimming as a result of the president's request. In a week, the Treasury will submit to the committee its recommendations for a new tax bill. And Dalton said, we must raise every cent we can find, but on this tremendous scale, we must be careful we are not pushed into the position of destroying those who pay the taxes. It's easy to talk about staggering taxes, he said, but you can't go to the extreme that will make people sacrifice their insurance or their homes because they can't keep up the payments. It's too early in the day for the War and Navy Department communiques in the Far Eastern fighting. Nothing more is known here. The sudden appearance of American bombers over the Philippines gave a sharp lift to everybody's spirits. Not just because of the specific damage they did, but because of the fact that we had, after all, been able to get some reinforcements to that area. MacArthur remains without fighter plane support, so far as we know here. And bombers based several hundred miles away probably cannot stop the Japanese fighters on the jungle roads. 
but they can work on Japanese airfields and warships and transports. And it's a good feeling to know the Japanese are going to continue to pay for their victories. I return you now to New York. And that was Eric Severide in Washington. And now to round out the news of the world, here are the reports from behind the enemy lines in Germany and occupied Europe. Dr. Otto Dietrich, the German press chief, wrote an article which appears in all German papers today. It's devoted to the subject of Adolf Hitler, and it tells the German people, and we quote, as commander-in-chief of the German army, the Führer is unable to leave his headquarters for more than a single day. With eyes on the Führer, the whole German people today is rising to the highest development of all its power. But the Italian paper, Corriere della Sera of Milan, is quoted by the New York Times today as carrying an article describing the German soldier in Russia. It says, when a German soldier returns from the Russian front, his face is hardened and bleak. His mien is somber, and he says nothing. He is a much different soldier from that of the campaign of 1939 and 1940. Tension between the French and the German conquerors appears to be rising, but it's the people who are taking action and not the men of Vichy. Yesterday, Yves Tarango, assistant to the Vichy interior minister, was killed when thrown from a train. Now it is revealed that a terrorist walked into the headquarters of Marcel D, a collaborationist yesterday in Paris, and slashed the only man he found there. Following these activities, the Paris newspaper Nouveau Temps printed an article warning that Germany may occupy French Africa unless the French collaborate more fully with their conquerors. The Germans also have launched an anti-American and anti-Semitic propaganda campaign in Romania. But according to underground reports reaching Ankara, defeatism and anger against Germany are said to be rising in Romania. And that's the news of the world. <laughs>